What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Making the Turn, the premier green industry podcast that highlights professionals across many areas, including golf course management, sports turf, sales, business, education, landscaping, and more. Making the Turn is hosted by me, BJ Parker. I've spent nearly 25 years in the green industry, mostly as a golf course superintendent, and now I want to bring the knowledge and insight from myself and the many people I've met and continue to meet along the way. Making the Turn will provide valuable content for those looking to learn from others, gain useful tips and tricks, and be better in their daily lives. You can find Making the Turn on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please be sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe. It helps keep the podcast growing and getting better. Thanks for listening, and welcome to another episode of the Making the Turn podcast. What's going on, everybody? Welcome into another episode of Making the Turn. I am your host, BJ Parker, and I appreciate you joining me. And we're following in line with our long series of uh, here at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville Turf Grass Field Day. And I'm um, joined right now by a guy that's many people are going to know. He's a staple in our industry, a longtime superintendent at the uh, Honors Course in Chattanooga, Ottawa. Mr. David Stone, how are you, sir? I'm good, BJ. Good to see you. Sure thing. Uh, as you get older, as they say, it's good to be seen. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> so what are you doing nowadays? Well, I've been retired for two and a half years, yeah. r- uh, roughly. And, uh, gee, it's, it's a tough decision, you know, which... Am I going to play golf today or not, or which course? <laughs> uh, actually, I play the honors uh, twice a week, and yeah. uh, sometimes I play some other course uh, sure. around the area on Mondays, and uh, I do just a smidgen of, of consulting, not on golf course, but actually on a, some a fellow that's got a polo field and a croquet court and uh, uh, landscaping and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Just, just enough to dabble a little bit. Just enough to keep you busy, huh? That's right. Yeah. Well, how's the golf game? Well... It's uh, it's like it's always anybody's is. It comes and goes. Yeah. Uh, a week or two ago, I told you I'm playing as good as I've ever played. And, yeah. And uh, last three rounds uh, weren't that good. So. Yeah. I don't get to play as much as I would like. I used. I mean, you know, I've, I love the game. That's why I got into the business. But the golf is just sort of it's it's missing me a lot these days. I, I don't know if. Uh, but uh, I'm glad to see you getting out and doing it. Yeah. Well, I've I've played for a long time. I think I was maybe. 12 or 13 years old yeah. when I started playing. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your, your career, sort of how you uh, – I like to find out more about guys in our industry, and you've had a long, lustrous career, and you've been a lot of places, but you landed in the honors course. So walk people who might not know you, and I don't know all that much about you, but uh, how you ended up there and sort of how you got in the business. Well, I, uh, as I said, I started playing golf when I was 12 or 13. Sure. And I lived on a farm. And it was south of Lewisburg, about 20 miles south. Okay. Which is, makes it about 70 miles south of Nashville. Yeah. And uh, lived on a farm. And uh, anything uh, like golf, I, w- I wanted to get better. And so I was always uh, trying to practice. I'd hit golf balls around the farm, at least in the in the uh, wintertime before the grass grew up too too tall. Yeah. And uh, then I tried to... Uh, to create me a par three hole with a green and huh. everything. And so I'd, <laughs> I'd go to the golf course and I'd see the workers and I'd ask them what kind of grass was on the greens. Right. And wound up actually one time at, at Henry Horton digging uh, some uh, 328 Bermuda that had grown in the edges of the bunkers and, right. and took the sprigs back home and, and planted them in pots and grew those out and eventually planted it on my green. So, wow. So uh, 
and it was all at that time just just because I wanted to be better at golf. Right. But uh, then in high school, uh, I played on high school golf team for three years. Okay. And uh, came time to decide what you're going to do the rest of your life, and uh, I read in one of the golf magazines that people were starting to go to college to be golf course superintendent. Right on. And I knew, I said, well, that's something that would appeal to me. Right. And so I went to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Okay. And uh, I knew one other person in turf there. Yeah. Uh, Roger Smith was was the other fellow, and Dr. Callahan, of course, was a professor. Uh Uh-huh. So I graduated there in uh, 71 and uh, went to work at what was Crockett Springs in Brentwood at that time. Yeah. a couple of years later became a superintendent there. Right. It's Nashville Golf and Athletic Club for anybody that doesn't know the name Crockett Springs. Right. But uh, I was superintendent for four years, and people from uh, Holston Hills and Knoxville made me an offer to come over there. Right. And so uh, I went to Holston and uh, uh, took a look at the property and thought it'd be pretty easy to turn it around, and, and for the most part I did. Yeah. And I was there five years, and uh, PB Dye, Pete's uh, son, and uh, a couple other guys had come to play golf on a Saturday at Holston, and the head pro asked me to play golf with them, so I did. <laughs> and then a few months later, they asked me to come down to the honors and visit and talk to Pete, and, and so I did that. And yeah. as they say, the rest is history. Right on. So I was at the honors for 34 years. Wow. What a, a great career at the honors. You got to see a lot of cool things down oh, there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I had a ball. How was, uh, how was working with uh, Pete Dye, and Pete, what, Pete, what was your relationship like with him? Oh, uh, great relationship pete doesn't have an ego number one right and number two doesn't really didn't do it for the money really sure. uh he charged the honors a certain fee and it wasn't an exorbitant by any means and he came back many many times making changes to the golf course yep. and this and that never charged him a penny wow yeah and uh now he's he's great he he called me up we had some great bent grass greens for a long time there right. and, and and he he called me up talking you know to Ask what they could do at other places where they're maybe having a little trouble and that sort yeah. of thing. So I had a great relationship with Pete. Yeah. So walk me through your your time, 34 years at uh, the Honors Course. What are some of the things that the the course went through? Some of the things you got to do there, changes and along the way. I know from now to today, or from back then to now, it's it's come a long way. And so, and I and the, it's a beautiful piece of property. Well, it it was bought and built for golf. You know, yeah. wasn't, wasn't any housing involved. Yeah. So so. So you start out with uh, with a lot to work with, yeah, and uh, basically 500 acres. Did you actually build it? Was you there through the grow in and everything? I was there during the latter stages of all of okay. that. Okay. Uh, I think at that time I tell people Pete didn't want a superintendent tell them that the bunkers were too deep and too steep to mow. <laughs> so so he that makes him, sense. He brought them in when it was too late to make those changes. Yeah, no doubt. But um, Pete uh, Pete uh, had some funny ideas, and they weren't all. Uh, all great turf ideas. Right. For instance, he uh, decided to plant finely fescue in everything that wasn't a fairway green or tea top. Oh wow! And uh, well, that would that does fine in Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, or it might do okay in the southeast if you got a lot of shade. Yep. But out in the sun, and it, uh, the first summer we we were open and went through, it was it was extremely hot and no irrigation and. Uh, that grass was gone. Right. And so after the first season, we got to decide, well, what are we going to do? <laughs> and uh, they had sodded some bluegrass around several of the, most of the greens, actually. And uh, it, bluegrass in the fall looks great and most of the year. And, and it did reasonably well in the summer. So we attempted to grow bluegrass roughs. Okay. So we seeded bluegrass in the roughs. 
And by the roughs, I mean the irrigated rough. We put in after the first year. We put in irrigation okay. for about 40 feet outside the fairway. And, in fact, we called it our 40-foot rough. And it, right. was, it was mowed at a couple of inches, and everything else after that grew pretty tall. Yeah. But uh, we seeded bluegrass. And we were able to grow decent bluegrass for a few years. But it got to where every year in August there was just more and more Bermuda grass out in that bluegrass. And we'd go out with Roundup, and we'd spray every spot right. and kill it and seed it. And next August, it's like you hadn't done anything. <laughs> All the Bermuda we thought we had killed right. was right back. Right. And uh, the owner, owner finally got tired of seeing those leopard spots out there uh, for part of the year. Yeah. And so he said, no more. And so we decided, uh, well, we decided, I, I had to convince him a lot of this thing. I said, he's trying to tell us something. I said, right. the Bermuda grass is growing well. And nothing else is growing really good. Yeah, uh, it's trying to tell us that we should be growing Bermuda grass roughs. Yeah, and uh, funny story about that. He said, "Well, can it grow up on the trees?" No, no, it can't grow in any shade. He said, "Well, I just don't know if I want a golf course where part of the grass is different from the other. The trees are different." And uh, we were going to have the Curtis Cup in 1994, and that's a, a ladies' Ryder Cup type event, except right. for amateurs, and it's held every two years. Yeah. In 1992, it was held over in England or Scotland, and they went over there to observe. And so they're in the gallery, and over there, people really watch golf. It's a pretty big gallery. Sure. And Mrs. Lufton comes back, and she's, she, first off, Mr. Lufton, he comes back, and he says, don't worry about the rough. He said, just let whatever grows grow. So that was a total change for him. Yeah. And see, Alice will tell you why. <laughs> so she's in, the, she's in the gallery, and, and she's watching there, and she's looking around at the grass. And she said, she asked somebody standing next to her, said, pardon me, what kind of grass do you have in the rough? Yeah. And she said, this lady looked at me like that was the craziest question she'd ever heard. She said, what do you mean, what kind of grass do we have in the rough? It's grass, grass. <laughs> it's just grass. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he said, just let whatever happens, happen. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Well, I, I'm, that's that's a great story. I'm, um, now, now, before that, we yeah. changed grasses in the fairways too. Yeah. So, was it originally zoysia grass in the fairways? No, okay. it was a, it was a four nineteen uh, mid iron mix. I don't know how mixed it was, but supposedly right. mixed together. And uh, Pete had wanted them to put in zoysia fairways, right? But they never dreamed of sodding it. And they thought, well, if it's sprig it, it'll take two years to grow it in. Nah, Pete, we can't wait that long. That's yeah. what they told him. Well, he sodded a little bit of zoysia in front of quite a few greens, like an approach. Uh -huh. And so the very first winter after the course was open was a bad one. It got below zero. It froze out a lot of Bermuda grass. Yeah. Well, guess what? It didn't freeze out any zoysia. No grass. zoysia. <laughs> and so it takes, uh, it takes me several months, along with the head golf professional, a guy named Mike Fidelke, who, grew, who played college golf at the University of Kansas. Well, guess what? They played at Albemarle in Kansas, which was the first golf course in the right. United States to have zoysia grass fairways. Yeah. So he said, oh, it's great. He said, we, I played on it in college. So the two of us started trying to convince Mr. Lupton to decide in zoysia grass. And, yeah. uh, and it took a while, but, but we did. Yeah. And then a couple of years later, he said, well, best decision we ever made. Right on. Yeah. So yeah. That, most of that zoysia siding was done in 1985. Wow. That's relatively new for the zoysia, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was. We were the first course in the southeast okay. to put in zoysia fairways, and there wasn't any such thing as the big roll back then. Yeah. It was two-foot slab by 18-inch oh. slab. Yeah. 
and you can imagine you're looking at a par five and you got one truck load of sod sitting out there and say I don't know maybe I'm a, maybe I'm more crazy than I think yeah uh, I don't know if this is doable or not but we knocked it out uh, we did a little bit of it in 84 actually and finished it in about three months in 1985 wow and another provision was from Mr. Lupton you can't close the hole we have to keep playing on it so we laid the sod would roll it and mow it and people would keep playing now we didn't have a lot of members back then the right. cor- course was yeah. young yeah. And, and so it wasn't a big issue but right. but that's what we did yeah I'd, I'd like to back up a minute because the story behind the honors course in general, and you've mentioned uh, Mr. Lupton several times, talk a little bit about his vision, why he started the course and all, and sort of what its role is in amateur golf and in golf in general, because um, it's a kind of a neat story. Uh, Mr. Lupton's granddad got in on the ground floor of Coca-Cola. Yeah. And that's, that's where their money came from. In fact, two guys from Chattanooga went to Atlanta to meet with a guy named Asa Candler, who was the head of Coca-Cola in Atlanta at that time, and it was like 1899. Uh-huh. They had the idea of bottling <laughs> Coca-Cola, yeah. and they wanted to buy a franchise. And Mr. Candler thought so little of the idea that he had a board meeting later that afternoon and didn't even mention that he had sold the, the bottling rights to two people from Chattanooga for a dollar. And uh, What? <laughs> yes, a dollar. A dollar. Yes, and those two guys... Neither one of them were Luptons, but they got back to Chattanooga and they started getting into this. And they said, "We're going to need, we're going to need somebody that's well healed with money to finance this." And so, they brought in Mr. Lupton's granddad, who who had a uh, patent medicine company, okay. but but was fairly wealthy by that time. Yeah. And so that then it took off, and and until he sold out in the, in the late '80s, the Lupton family owned. They were the single largest uh, independent bottler of Coca-Cola. And so, so that's, that's where his fortune came from. <laughs> and uh, then there was uh, three guys in Chattanooga that were talking about uh, building a golf club. Yeah. They didn't like the fact that Chattanooga Golf and Country Club, you could hear kids screaming at the swimming pool All right. and that when they were playing golf. And uh, they'd been looking a little bit and, and basically had decided, well, we can't afford to do it. And Mr. Lupton got wind that they were talking about it, and he said, come down to my office Monday and let's talk about it. Yeah. And this one guy told me, he said, I knew if he got involved, it, it could go. Right. And uh, so uh, so Mr. Lupton did get involved with it. He was a prominent member at Augusta National. Uh-huh. He was on the pin setting committee. And uh, he uh, he loved amateur golf, m- much more than, than professional golf. Sure. And so uh, he wanted to make it uh, a tribute to amateur golf. And uh, we have an honors circle in front of the clubhouse. And in the circle are plaques commemorating some of the greatest amateur golfers from the state of Tennessee. Right. Uh, some of them eventually turned pro. I mean, Kerry Middlecoff was yep. one Masters and U.S. Open and some other things. But uh, but lots of great amateur golfers. Yeah. Well, that that's I guess the the his, the story behind the honors was he was wanting to promote the the amateur game. He loved the game of golf, and uh, it's been a huge. Uh, uh, the proponent of uh, state of Tennessee amateur golf. I mean, it's hosted many of the amateurs, and I know that that that's a the the golf course itself has been big and 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 giving back in that way. Yeah, at at that time, apparently they had a hard time getting the good clubs to take the Tennessee amateur. Yeah, and and Mr. Lupton told him he's starting in 1989. He said we'll take it every 10 years. Right. And so then after that, the golf club of Tennessee got on board, yep. and 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 some other great courses. And yeah. And so it it grew from that. Of course. Mr. Lupton got Tennessee Golf House off the ground by giving them two and a half million dollars. There you go. So. Yeah, 
been a he's been big for the golf in Tennessee for sure, and uh, you know so is the honors. It's been great, and I, I had the fortune of uh, you know starting my career at the Golf Club of Tennessee, so sort of well connected between um, it's how you and I met a long time ago, and and uh, sort of the connection, a little bit of connection between the two golf courses. Not that I think Golf Club maybe eight or ten years a little bit older or younger. I mean, the, the, the honors was what in late mid. Early 80s? Honors opened in 83. Yeah. And I'm going to say Golf Club of Tennessee around 1990, Yeah, maybe? it was 1991. Yep. And I went to work there in 97. So okay. I got to start there kind of early. Worked for Dave Green. You remember Dave? I do. Yeah. I hadn't I, – I haven't spoke to him much, in, but he's, he was very influential in my career. So I it was good. You. Yeah. So – so, um, so what are what are what are some of the things that you got to do along the way? As far as out, I know you talked about uh, the fairway conversions and putting in the Zoya. Y'all was the first course. Uh, I know y'all eventually got to converting greens from the the pin cross to or from the bent grass to Bermuda. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things you got to see along the way, the changes. 1991, uh, getting ready for the U.S. Amateur, and. Uh, Oh, I wanted to be—I wanted to really be impressive, you know. Yeah. Have really firm greens, so I chose not to airify the greens in the spring of 1991. Well, that's a mistake, uh, because that's the same year I also started rolling greens, and we had a hot, wet summer, and the greens really went downhill, and it was looking kind of bad. But, but we turned them around, and yeah. and, and they were—they were good for the amateur. They wasn't quite as good as they could have been, but, uh -huh. uh, but because of that, and and the greens that suffered, as everybody that's grown bent grass would know they're the greens that didn't have great air movement right so i said i need to put in trust test plots of some of these new bents but put them in place where the air movement is poor because most of the university plots that i'd seen at that time were like this one here today yeah. actually out in the wide open right and, and so there's plenty of air movement and it really doesn't stress them out uh to to really learn a lot and so i had 27 different uh, bent grass varieties right and we planted three by five plots we had four reps of each one and we also did another set of the same ones out in a sunny location because we thought well maybe some grass is better in the shade than the sun sure turned out no if they were <laughs> better in the shade they were also better in the sun yeah but anyway we didn't know that at the time yeah but uh, one of the last entries sent to me was was a uh, grass sin three syn three from Dr. Milt Engelke at Texas A&M, and it's the one that eventually became Crenshaw bent grass. Okay. Which I still think to this day, the very first seed collecting from those plants and scent were maybe the most heat tolerant grasses available. And I feel like that over the years, maybe they didn't do a good job out where the grass is grown of roguing out the off types, uh -huh. because in the later years, people that planted Crenshaw didn't have the same issues. The original Crenshaw, all you had to do is say the word dollar spot around it, <laughs> and it would break out. Sure. Uh, now, you could control it, but it, but it was very susceptible. Yeah. And then years later, people were planting Crenshaw, and I'd ask them about dollar spot. Oh, I don't even treat for it. I never see it. Yeah. I said, you don't have the same Crenshaw I had. Right. Uh, but the Crenshaw was a great uh, uh, warm-weather bent grass. Right. And, of course, the, the thought was eventually maybe we could convert the greens at the honors from Pencross. To, to one of the new varieties. Eventually, we did try it uh, with interseeding, uh -huh. and uh, it had worked in the research area. The research area we had, we had five little greens in addition to the plots, and we uh, ran what's called a job saver on a greens air air fire, poked small holes and seeded Crenshaw into half of one of those greens, right. 
And Jeff Huber was actually my assistant at the time. There you at the go. Golf club. Well, the next year I told him to do it again, and he forgot which half he had seated, and so he did a different half. So it wound up we had three quarters of that green that had been seated, overseated in Crenshaw. Well, Jeff goes on to head jobs other places, and I forget about it for a couple of years. And one day in November or December, after frost is kind of off-colored bent grass, I'm walking outside the shop and I look across at the test area. And I see three-fourths of that green is, has a purple cast to it. <laughs> and I go out there, and it's the Crenshaw. Not only has come up, it has dominated that pencross. Right. And so that we had a pie shape. We had one-fourth of the green that was still pencross. You could tell by the texture and the color. And yeah. the other three-fourths was Crenshaw. It's a fantastic. That'll, that'll work. We're going to do this to the golf course. So we do the same thing to the golf course. Got the seed up. Great. Oh, it's going to be terrific never saw a difference and in fact we did 17 and a half greens and the half green that we overseeded half of was no difference and and the only thing i can say is we did more maintenance on the golf course we were rolling the greens there we yeah. weren't rolling them out in the test area right uh and maybe overall we had less thatch out on the golf course and yeah. just the abrasion of rolling and everything else the seed even though never it came to. up, it never was able never. To, to take off. Yeah. So then several years later, 2010, uh, we had uh, we'd started having an event called the Lupton Invitational. Okay. To, and eventually became the Lupton Memorial after Jack died. But it, it was the, some of the best mid-amateurs and senior golfers in the country. Uh-huh. And um, that put a lot of stress on the bent grass because my philosophy had always been a lot opposite from a lot of people. A lot of people would, suck, would cut down their bent grass short in the spring because the temperature wasn't hot and you thought the grass would stand it. But that's the time that bent grass really grows roots Right, is in the spring. I mowed them the highest in the spring. And when we got to late May, I started cutting the greens down and I kept them cut short throughout the summer. Sure. Well, this, this event uh, forced me to start mowing them shorter a, a good month earlier than I wanted to. Uh-huh. And then 2010 was hot and wet. And uh, we had back to back in two weeks, we had the we had the NCAA and it rained every day during that event in 2010. And then we had the Lupton Invitational two yep. weeks later. And again, it was hot and wet. And by the time those two events were, o- were over, I knew our greens were, were really stressed out worse than I'd ever seen. Right. And we hung on and actually by August, they were starting to get better. And uh, some other people's greens had looked good up until August, and in August <laughs> they fell off. Yep. But ours were getting better. But anyway, the board had decided they wanted to go to a new grass, and they'd all heard about A1. And so, so we sodded A1, even though I was, at that time, playing golf courses that had the, the uh, new Ultra Dwarf Bermudas. Uh-huh. And I said, folks, I'm playing courses that's got Bermuda greens that are better than I can make bent grass. No, no, they didn't believe it. Yeah, I can't do that. Even took them to Atlanta. We visited two golf courses. One of them was Eastlake. Yeah. And they said, well, yeah, the Bermuda's a lot better than we thought, but we still think Bent's the best. Yeah. So we went through and sought, stripped off the pen cross and sighted A1. And then I put in another test plot of Bermuda greens right by the clubhouse, one of our three practice putting greens. I th- put a third of it in Tiff Eagle, a third of it in Champion, and a third of it in Mini Birdie. Right. And... Uh, I'd encourage them to go out there and putt on it. The next year, everybody was talking about how great they putted. Yeah. So uh, we wound up, cha- 
just two years later, they said, we decided we want to go to Bermuda grass here. Yeah, and so we switched to Bermuda in 2013. Yeah. And uh, last year, after playing golf on a Saturday, now, I mean, the head pro was against it. The club president was against it. Uh, but anyway, last summer, I'm playing golf, and I finished playing on Saturday afternoon. We're sitting around the porch eating at the clubhouse. Got a bunch of guys, and I said, all right, guys, we switched in 2013 to, to from Bent to Bermuda. Anybody think we made a mistake? Oh, no, no, yeah. no. They, they, they were quick to say that the, the Bermuda was, a, was the thing to, to yeah. do. What's your thoughts on it as far? I mean, I mean, I'm a fan of the Bermuda. Um, I, you know, I was at, I came to Brentwood and the year after they did it, loved the Bermudas. I'm a, you know, we both play golf and, and if you find really good bent grass, it's, it's hard to beat as far as playability, but I think these Bermudas are great. I love the, 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 the thoughts of the Zoysias coming along, but what was your, what was your, were you still kind of not so sure about transitioning to Bermuda or were you, you were like, this is what, this is going to be a game changer for us. I was pretty convinced in 2010. Yeah. Yeah. It and sounds like you were. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I'm still convinced. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's been a little different than what I thought it yeah. would be. I thought it would be cheaper to maintain. Yeah. And I'd say for the most part, it's, it's not. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot more work than I thought it would be because it has to be groomed more frequent, more sure. aggressive. Yep. Uh, most courses to have it really good. They'll mow it in the morning, and then they'll come back out for the triplex at 5 o'clock in the evening and mow it again. Yeah. So it's more labor-intensive from that standpoint. On the other hand, you can create a surface with it that you can't touch with bent grass. Right. The only advantage that I've seen to bent grass is if you have a tournament where it's really important that you have them really, really firm, like where only the best shots will hold a green. If you have a dry spell... You can dry down bent grass and usually get them very, very hard. Right. We had the U.S. Amateur, and one of the, one of the days I saw balls hitting on the greens, and the first bounce bounced as high as eight-foot flight stick. With the Bermuda, even though you can dry them down more, there's enough mat there that uh, you just don't quite get the, exactly the same firmness right. that, that we had with the bent grass. That would be the only disadvantage. Yeah. How did you – I always found that the, uh, the cup situation was – my only real issue is did you ever notice like the the flaking of the of one side of the cup or issue I, i've never seen really any anybody give me a solution as to how to solve that other than change cups every day i don't think there is a solution yeah that's, that's right now if they would allow them to use those rings inside you know above the cup liner yeah that helps yeah and a lot oh, a lot of people think think it looks tacky and i first thought it looked tacky but i saw when they would let me use it how much better it maintained right. the edge of the cup and then a lot of people think oh I heard it hit the cup that's why my putt lipped out or yeah. whatever I did test I, I had a cup side by side without a liner and with a liner and I hit a bunch of three putt putts hit them too hard hit edges this that we couldn't tell any difference right just just as many it's mentality exactly yeah exactly yeah, I, I, that was something I always battled. Um, I've I've actually heard people messing around with like um, hairsprays and aerosols and different things just to like coat that ring. But you know, it's a growth habit of the grass. I mean, you're you're physically removing removing a, a section of the grass. It just doesn't have anything to hang on to. The only time it's not an issue is the first two or three months of, after the greens have been sprigged. Yeah, it hasn't quite formed that that grain at right. that point. Right. But I don't believe there's any way because. 
for instance, at the honors course now, they're mowed awfully short. Yeah. And they're awfully uh, fast greens, but there's still there's still the grain to it. Yeah. You, you, you see it when you go over a hill. You know, the grain pretty much goes downhill. Yeah. What um, what sort of stories you got? I know you've hosted many big time events from amateur, you know, big time amateur events, uh, U.S. amateur, different uh, state, local amateurs, um, lots of different things that are involved in the in golf, and not only in Tennessee. What are some stories you got? I know uh, t Mr. Tiger Woods played there back when he was younger. Um, you got any interesting stories about some of those things? Yeah, I do. Uh the first time Tiger played, he attempted to qualify for match play in the U.S. Amateur in 91, and he was 15 at that time. Right. And he did not make match play. Of course, I think every year after that, he won it until he turned <laughs> professional. Right. But uh, um, then fast forward to uh, 1996, the, the first of two NCAAs that we hosted. Uh -huh. the, uh, that tournament is held in late May. And we had already switched to Bermuda grass roughs. Well, the people that live in this part of the world know that in late May, you don't have any rough when you have Bermuda grass. It's a, almost like hitting out of the fairway. Yeah. There's, there's very little rough there. And I was aware that I would like to have rough. I'd li I always like to uh, reward people who hit fairways. Right. And uh, so I experimented the year before we overseeded the roughs of ryegrass. And it looked good and it it gave us rough in the spring and so 96 was the second year we did it uh -huh. and um, ryegrass is easy to grow in the spring everybody knows that and so we were able to get a thick four inch rough uh, for that event and then on top of that there was a guy named tom meeks who worked for the usga sure the ncaa hired him to do the setup at that time He's the famous guy that set the pin at the Olympic Club uh, <laughs> when when the balls would roll up to the to the cup and roll thirty feet backwards, right, right. Uh, uh, where where the greens were a little too severe. Right. But he set he chose pin locations more severe than I ever used. Uh -huh. All right. So I'll preface that. So the golf course was set up the toughest I think I've ever seen it. Right. And Hank Haney backs me up. I read a few years ago Hank Haney's book, The Big Miss. And it's about Tiger, basically. And in the very first chapter, Haney talks about the honors course. Okay. He said, uh, I'd seen Tiger Woods play in a couple of other tournaments. He said, but what really got my attention was the 1996 NCAA at the honors course. He said, that course was set up so hard that I told Mark O'Meara, if they'd have been playing the U.S. Open there that week, Tiger would have still been the only person to finish on the par. And O'Meara <laughs> said, you're kidding Hank Haney said, I'm not kidding, said it was that hard. And and that's the truth. Tiger shot a 67. That was the lowest round he shot. He shot 69, 67, 69. And then he flags, Tiger flags me down. I'm riding up by the clubhouse in my Cushman, and we got two parking lots, and their van was parked in the far parking lot. Uh -huh. And he asked me, would you give me a ride to the to the van? So I did, and I introduced myself, tell him who I am. And I said, I can't believe the scores you're shooting. Yeah. I said, gosh, the pins are tougher than I'd ever set them. And he said, listen, he said, people have no idea how hard this golf course is. He said, it is a really hard golf course. <laughs> and he shoots 80 the next day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, yeah. the next day, it had rained, I want to say, during the practice round. Yeah. And so the first two days, the greens were soft. And the third day, by the end of the day, they were starting to get the firmness. Yeah. The fourth day... The weather changed. We had a cool front come through. We got a north wind like we've got here today, 
Uh, so there's 10, 15-mile-an-hour winds. The greens were already getting dry. Yeah. So they were firm the last day, and the wind was blowing. And 70 was the lowest score that anybody shot. Wow. And uh, But that 67 that Tiger shot uh, to, to me and Mike Holder at Oklahoma State, the, who's athletic director now but used to be the golf yeah. coach, he told me years later he came and watched some juniors and some kids shot like 66, and he said, that ain't the best round I ever shot here. He said Tiger Woods 67 is the best round I ever shot in yeah. honors course. Right. And I have to agree with that. Yeah. Now, he went on to win that, didn't he? He did. Yeah. He shot 80 the last day and still won by three shots. <laughs> Isn't that something? Yeah. That tells you how hard it was. That's right. I mean, that's crazy. Wow. Well, um, so in your career, you've, you've had a longevity, a long time in the career. You've done this a long time. Surely you've read a book, had some mentors, people that you've kind of what, – what sort of kept you going, some of the things that uh, – helped you along the way maybe it's an individual or some or uh, something that you kind of have kept you uh, sort of uh, enjoying this business oh i just i just always love to learn yeah you know, that, yeah that more than anything uh early in my career at crockett springs we had issues of isolated dry spots and i learned hey you can feel that with your knife yeah you can feel the firmness you can feel when the green's getting firm and getting dry so i learned you can just tell by that and, and if you can water to prevent it from happening, you don't have the issue of trying right. to solve the acid sure. dry spot. So, so um, all the people that, that come along and work for me as superintendents, most all of them yep. adopted and kept that knife checking system for right. a long time. Maybe maybe with the moisture meters now, maybe others have moved on to something else. But yeah. uh, uh, but that was one thing. But I was just always experimenting. I experimented at Holston Hills. I experimented at, at Crockett Springs, even when I didn't have much money to fool with. Right. You know? I'd always, I'd spray half of something and uh, because I wanted to learn because sometimes you don't always get good results from yep. something you apply. Sometimes it causes negative effects too. Right. And if you spray everything, you never learn. You never learn. Yeah. Well, one of the, that, that kind of leads me into something that we were talking about earlier. I was talking with some of you guys that used to work for you, but um, you, you mentioned transitioning to the zoysias and the fairways, but you also tinkered around with trying, because it, ultimately they got Bermuda contamination and you sort of I think you might have been the one that sort of said how can I solve this issue and maybe came up with a, a solution for and a spray that uh, sort of helped do that you know I guess I should have written it up in some sort of publication because yeah. it never gets mentioned but yeah I am the person that discovered that Fusilade uh, was a was a great tool to control yep. Bermuda and soja grass and um, I've got pictures I could show or slides uh, I got uh, 40 one-gallon pots, actually 80, but I got 40 one-gallon pots, and I put a four-inch cup-cutter plug of zoysia in half of them and a four-inch cup-cutter plug of Bermuda grass in the other half. Right. And uh, I bought this thick chemical book. I read through labels, and if it said it controlled Bermuda, I bought a little bit of it. Yeah. And I'm talking about... Dalapon or anything else that was essentially a soil sterilant. Right. But I wanted to know, is there a rate of something out there right. that would kill one grass without killing the other? Right. And we actually, I had this girl that had an engineering degree work for me at the time, Ann Evans. And uh, she was, I told her what we'd want to do, and, and, and I could trust that she could do the calculation for a guy right. And we would actually spray with Windex bottle. Okay. Windex bottle, and we screened basically 40 different chemicals. And uh, I've got pictures of some pots where it didn't kill any grass. I got pictures where it killed both soja and Bermuda grass. Yeah. And but there was one that was really good, and that was a fusillade 
and uh, and it uh, it did wonders. And for several years, uh, we sprayed fuselade on fairways two, three, four times a year. Uh-huh. And then, oh, about 1999, something like Trey Cutshaw was an assistant with me, and I. I'm always reading magazines about turf research and this and that, and I was reading about in Arizona they were using turflon ester to uh, spray in the ryegrass right around the greens to keep the keep the Bermuda out of the greens. And so, well, I need to try some of that. Yep. And so I said, I bought some. And I said, Trey, I want to go out and, uh, and spray some strips of turflon ester on number seven fairway. And so we do that. He comes in. He's got a little bit left. What do you want me to do if this is left? I said, hmm, let's, let's put a little fuselade in with it. Let's just have the mix and spray me some more strips of that. So we do. And about a week or so later, he said, David, you got to come out here to number seven and look at these strips. And where we sprayed the mix, not only did it hurt the Bermuda big time, but it actually made the soja more green. Right versus less green when you sprayed fuselade by itself. So right. we discovered that the turpline ester was a safener and it enhanced the Bermuda control. Yeah. That must have been pretty uh, pretty uh, special to f- come across that because that, that Bermuda contamination is an issue in the zoysias. And uh, you, you're sitting here with the guy that sort of came up with the idea of spraying turflon and fuselade together. Jeff Hollister was my assistant in 1988, and the Bermuda was getting really bad again yeah. in the fairways. And I had him go out and estimate, and overall he estimated that 30% of the fairways had been taken back over with Bermuda grass. Yeah. And he, he thought it was a lost cause. Right. And, uh, and the, uh, the next year I started, uh, actually I guess that year is when I started doing yeah. the testing. 1988 and, and then in 89, all I did was a few strips in some certain areas because I didn't know what was going to happen. Is it going to cause the soil to all winter kill right. or what? So it was uh, 1990, I guess, before I could go out and wholesale spray. Right. Now, do you st- they still do it to this day? or They do. Yeah. And they do. Uh, so what's been the take-back effect? Is it is it sort of, is the, you see a lot, I mean, is there a lot of reduction or in the uh, Bermuda? Oh, gosh, it'd be 1% Bermuda yeah. contamination. Yeah. Uh, I, most members would play and never see any Bermuda in the fairways. Right. Yeah, it's just a little bit. If you go out there early in the morning with dew on it, it'll it'll show up a little bit, especially if he, it's been a while since he sprayed. Uh, <clears throat> but if you do it for a number of years, eventually uh, you can get rid of it. Yeah. You can get rid of the Bermuda. Did you ever see any downside to it at all? It just temporarily off-colors the grass yeah. and stunts it a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, I just tell people, you mean tell me if a – if you got cancer and they give you a drug <laughs> that'll cure the cancer, but but your hair will fall out for six weeks, you wouldn't do it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, what about the? Would you have Meyer zoysia? Was yes. That, do you see it on the, all the zoysias? Are you? Are have you seen testing on and spraying on the, on the finer blades? Some some zoysias are more sensitive to it. Yeah. Than others. In fact, most of them are probably more sensitive right. to it than Meyer. Uh, all of them can stand it, right. but, but some are a little more sensitive. Uh, Palisades is a little more, and El Toro a little more sensitive to it. Yeah. Uh, I even think Xeon uh, uh, is a little bit more sensitive to it. But yeah. uh, uh, still, it's if you don't do something, it's, it, the Bermuda will yeah. take you over. How long when y'all when you put the uh, zoysia in did you start noticing that the Bermuda was coming back? It's probably two years, one to two years. Yeah. And we'd sprayed Roundup on the Bermuda before yeah, we of course. started the zoysia. Yeah. <laughs> Probably a couple of times, I would imagine. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, um, so what, um, what are, what are some of the things along in your career that, uh, you, um, you know, sort of look back on and, and say, uh, you know, you're happy to be a part of or enjoy doing and, and uh, some of the things that, because uh, I know you've had a lot of guys that have worked for you, have gone on to be superintendents and, and, and great guys in the industry. I know a lot of those. That's, that, that for you, I know is big. It, for me, I don't have near as many, but that's something. But what are some of the things along your career you look back on and they're just, you know, kind of things you just look back on and be pretty proud of? Oh, I, you know, I just, I had fun with all those guys. Yeah. Uh, gosh, we, we played we played golf together because um, we could sit here and probably talk about all of them. I'm sure yeah, you got yeah, stories yeah. about all of them, but they don't. <laughs> they they have more stories about me than I do about them. Uh, yeah. Every now and then, one will mention something about something that I said to them at one time or jumped on them about yeah. something, and I said I don't remember that at all. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, it. Uh, I've I've had to, I've been fortunate. I've, I've hired a lot of good people. Yeah. And, and they've they've helped make me look good and and. Uh, you know, you hire good people, they come up with good ideas. Right. You know, they, they help you get better. Yep, yep. So you're, uh, you're, are you honorary member? You got a membership down at the Honors? You just playing golf there and yeah. hanging out? Yeah, I'm what's called an honored member. Yeah. And uh, I live, uh, of course, I lived in the house on the golf course the, 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 while I was superintendent. Right. Uh, Will lives there now. I live, as a crow flies, about two miles away. Sure. Uh, Udawa has gotten bad for traffic and at that so it takes me 15 minutes to get the golf course wow but uh, <laughs> but i'm out there um, pretty much every day i've got a 10 year old dog that grew up there and so until yeah. he gets old and he can't walk around i'll i'll run him a little bit each yeah. each day out there and then i play golf on wednesdays and saturdays in fact i run a game called david's game that i came up with right about 10 years ago and uh, uh got a lot of a lot of members that play in that uh and uh like I say, doing just a little bit of consulting, not much, but I just, yeah, I've just, uh, retirement's good. Yeah, well, that's good. That. Well, what else do you like to do when you're not hanging around the golf course or playing golf? You, what do you enjoy doing? Birding, into birding. Birding. Yeah, I've been, been in it for, for a long time, uh, over 30 years, yeah. really. Uh, at, uh, I go, we go up to, we go up to northern Ohio near Toledo every year in the spring in mid-May. There's a place up there called McGee Marsh where, all these warblers that nest in Canada that come up from Central America, they pass through Tennessee yep. twice a year, but they nest up there, and they come into this little restricted area uh, before they fly across the Great Lakes, and they're tired, and they feed there, and you get great close-up looks of all these little colorful birds. So right. we, we do that every year. <coughs> we went to Ecuador to watch birds last winter. Ecuador. You photo or just, just bird watching? More, more bird watching. Yep. It, is, it is really hard. To, you got to... You either watch birds or you photograph. Sure, you, you, almost you can't, can't do both. Do both. Can't that's do right. both. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, I know your time's valuable, and I appreciate you, appreciate seeing you and sitting down with me. And uh, this has been special. I, I'm glad I get to catch up with you and uh, hear more about what you what the, what you got going on in your career. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people are going to love this and gravitate towards. So I appreciate you doing this. Well, you're quite welcome. Enjoy doing it. Well, um, if you ever uh, get a chance to. Um, check out the podcast called making the turn it's available pretty much anywhere and uh i'd love to have you check it out and see what you think about it well, i'll definitely do it now all right well uh thanks for listening guys i had uh, mr david stone a longtime superintendent uh, retired from the uh, honors course in Ottawa, tennessee and it was a pleasure talking to you sir i, I thank you um and uh that's it for the episode i appreciate you listening until next time i'll talk to you soon